Welcome back to Jack's Corner, where I discuss society issues and culture in everyday life here in America. So thank you for coming back to my corner. I'm here again with the Duchess, and I want to thank you, Veronica, for sharing your last story on Goldie. I could imagine there's so many different people, walks of life that you meet coming through those prison doors and talking their, about their stories to you and sharing their experiences. But you've accumulated so many writings from prison that I, I'd like to ask you to please share another, another writing with us. Thank you. And first, I'd like to say thank you. And I'm honored to be in Jack's Corner. Um, I appreciate your show and I appreciate that um, you've invited me on. And today I would like to read from my manuscript entitled Sister Me. That's a great manuscript. I've read that one, not all of it, but I, I love the work that you've put into that manuscript. Thank and you. every time you go through hard times, you and I, or we know of anyone that's going through a hard time, that's a female, we tend to approach it from, uh, I, I don't want to say so much a feminist perspective, but we see it as a, oh, sister, you're like me. Yes. You're going through tough times like me. So Absolutely. we use sister me. Yes, exactly. Go ahead. Thank you so much. <clears throat> this is uh, sister me and it's page 159. Informants. Informants are not popular nor are they very much instrumental in maintaining security in this prison. The truth is nothing really serious ever happens here, except perhaps once every few years. We're talking serious in terms of security and violence. No stabbings, none of the typical events in a men's, like a men's prison occur here, but not very often. Women here are not like their male counterparts. What I've heard a lot of women say repeatedly is that women are petty, gossip mongers, instigators, weak, sluts, untrustworthy, and more emotionally upsetting than anything else. Also, there are many complaints among the prisoners about being treated like children by the administrators, enforced rules and policies, and especially the attitudes they cultivate in their employees. For example, routine meetings are called by the prison department heads to show various videos and share new literature about how criminals operate, the guards are instructed in how to distance themselves from the prisoners and avoid personal involvement in their lives. There are constant reinforcements to perpetuate the us and them distinction. I've managed to view some of these videos in administration and read some of their literature and management manuals. They caused me a great deal of anxiety. The myths were so transparent and inflated all they do is to create obstacles for those like me who are trying to demystify the female felon. Such a mountain of apparently respectable evidence makes the task seem hopeless. By the way, Justine did return to Pima County Jail on the morning I left Tucson from my escape hearing. Around 4 a.m., I noticed that Justine was curled under a mattress outside my door, sleeping. She had been out only 10 hours or so. Guess that guard was right when he said she'd be right back. September 4th, 7 a.m. The supervisor who terrorized me for years in Washington and spurred me on to the escape attempt is gone. Upon my readmittance to prison, I was chained and shackled by C.O. Luther at the doorway of the clinic so that I could be properly escorted to the records department for a new ID photo. 
necessary due to my altered appearance, blonde hair and blue eyes, via contacts. Alone in the hall area, Luther confided that several other COs had been rooting for me and they were disappointed by my capture. He also confided some of the changes since my escape. He explained that the head of security, Dan Howard, had been sent into early retirement. They did the same for Arnold Danby, the man with wandering hands. I'd been assisting a certain prisoner in gathering documentation about his molesting her and the other prisoners as well. The pr this prisoner was already pregnant and a chaste wife as well. After much fear and guilt, she had gotten up the courage to press charges. Like many women, she harbored a vague and groundless belief that somehow she was guilty for her own victimization of her. Many women came forward to attest to his misconducts of a sexual nature. They, too, felt fear of retaliation should they expose the truth. Fear of reprisal and punishment, even when protesting the grossest injustices and crimes, is always present. After all, administration makes it clear, we are them, and the prison staff are someone else. No matter what they do, they are still finally us, as far as I am concerned. As so often in these situations, I have been drawn into help, at first just for comfort and support, but I was inspired to document the crime. I wrote about the Danby incident and, with her consent, painted the horrible scene of the pregnant woman under sexual assault. Now, Danby was pushed out. And then, unexpectedly, C.O. Luther said that during the reorganization and the few days I was absent due to my escape, that Supervisor Wilson had transferred to McNeil Island. Luther went on to say that I was being held responsible for all of these shifts in security and institutional personnel and not to the applause of all others still working at the prison. I didn't immediately accept the news of Wilson. He had terrorized me for years. I looked gravely into Luther's eyes and demanded that he tell me the truth. The friendly smile left his face. He had worked here through all the years of Wilson's tyranny over the prisoners, tyranny with emphasis on me, and he knew how serious the news really was. He repeated himself and added reassuringly that he wouldn't lie about it. Wilson was definitely gone. The emotions that shook within me left no part of me untouched. I found myself shuddering and trembling while old memories welled up, stirring uncontrollable further emotional storms. Tears filled my eyes. I was breathless. After a pause, I again asked him to repeat what he said, and when he did, I felt hope emerge, hope that it might actually be true, that one of the prison's worst terrorists power-hungry, monstrous, cruel, and sadistic human being was finally let go of. Then past experiences having taught me not to hope, I turned angry, demanding that Luther stop playing games and just tell me the truth. He's still there. Again and again, he repeated himself, and I finally, finally began to believe, but still not wholly. Later that same day, I've since asked other guards and administrators about Wilson, and they too have told me the man I feared above all others is finally gone. How could it be after all these years of tyranny, hearing his claims that he enjoyed his work here and how he was eagerly anticipating getting even further power over the women? 
How is it that he left after my escape? I evaluated the situation and wondered whether or not had I tried to escape, no matter how attractive freedom itself was, if he had left this prison earlier, I may have still been there. It's not easy to be certain, but I finally decided it was quite possible I wouldn't have even attempted the escape, even with such a tempting opportunity if he'd have left first. Certainly his continual threats and actions against me, forcing me years in isolation, stripped cells, taking away all of my constitutional rights, cruel and unusual punishments, actions against me constituted a terrible stress and were a decisive element in my decision to flee. He reigned tyrannically over my life for years, and his yea or nay meant every difference in the conditions of how I lived, and it was almost always nay. He told me once that I was responsible for the gray in his hair, that I was one of the most difficult and stubborn people he'd ever known. He also used to tell me he'd break me. He'd teach me to do my own time. No more fighting for other prisoners' rights. In other words, do nothing for anyone else and let the prison do what it liked with the weak. That was his authoritarian idea of good citizenship, just doing your own time. He had certainly tried to break me. This following example will only be completely meaningful to someone who's lived long-term in an isolation block where friends have found their breaking point. Yes, they break. Human beings break. Some literally died as a result. Others mutilated themselves. Some went crazy. Others vented their rage and frustration by pushing their body waste out the cracks of the doors and their door flaps. We lived in stench-filled, bone-chilling cold and frequent darkness. Water and lights were controlled only on the outside of the cell by the guards. I spent three winters back-to-back -back in there in the eye block, falling asleep in convulsions of shivering while I heard some women going on for hours, continually begging for water or light. What terrible thing had I done to get all this time in solitary? Nothing they could write me up on. No infraction, in other words, no serious violation of the prison rules. But once there, I was to violate William's such self-justification. That, though, is another story. The worst thing Wilson ever said to me, did to me, was verbal. For about a year, he had the habit of pulling me from my isolation box and brought into his office where we'd spent up to three or four hours discussing political theory, social trends, psychology, and personal pasts. One day, we had a heated argument about politics. He became extraordinarily inflamed with rage over my continued insistence that this treatment of prisoners was immoral and unconscionable. I told him that we really weren't different from him, his army buddies, or their wives. Wilson strongly adhered to the idea that nearly all convicted criminals were something like bad seeds intrinsically sick and unable ever to be normal. It was as if he thought we were mutants or subhuman animals. I, of course, was vehement in denouncing his fascist philosophy. He believed in capital punishment I was opposed. I told him at some length that the death penalty was a social act of first-degree murder. We disagreed also on my position that war set up the government to act as a bureau that recruited innocent men to find occupation and contract killing contract killing, principally for the profits of a few capitalists who controlled world politics. 
I often reminded him that the rest of us were nothing more than deluded players who were exploited by propaganda and bought the dogmas of patriotism, etc., etc. Lesbianism was, was another bone of contention between us. Wilson was a classic homophobic, but dangerously so, given his authority to make life so miserable in a closed and essentially secret environment where he could do what he liked with the women. Lesbianism is a natural expression of human need when women are isolated from men. Even when they have access to men, lesbianism may still be simply an expression of choice to attain a depth of tenderness which most men do not acknowledge that women need, that all human beings need, but usually do not receive. Clearly, I wasn't taking positions that would endear me to the, this correctional officer. I was an activist, a practicing jailhouse lawyer, member of the National Lawyers Guild, a regularly published writer, member of the Feminist Writers Work Guild, and also an affiliate of the Revolutionary Socialist League. That's not what he considered doing my own time, though. Of course, it was done on my time. Then, too, my involvement with Mickey won me no honors. She was a high profile, and I was even more outspoken. We were both in the hole, and Wilson was fat on his catch. It was common knowledge that Mickey had taken actions that forced the administration to put her in the isolation block just so she could be near me. And it was also known that the real reason they put me there originally is so they could avoid placing me on the max wing where Mickey lived. Prior to the time we were moved to the I block, which is isolation block, administ administration told us that it had decided, it had been decided, they would never house us inside the same area. That was remarkable in that we had never been charged with conspiring to commit criminal acts, nor had we ever been in trouble together. Certain published articles, I was told, justified their positions. Articles I wrote about being a lesbian in prison. So here I was, pulled in from the eye block, sitting in Wilson's office, sickly and terribly thin from not eating. The medical staff had been threatening me with forced feedings through my nose if I continued not eating. Never mind the bugs, worms, and human hair in the food, the stench of rotted meat and faulty sewage that I was to eat alongside. Never mind the raving madness all around, the tormented screams, the physical sickness as the cold and lack of proper cleansing materials fed bacteria into our systems. Never mind the day-to-day -day injustices that boiled and steeped the lives of sister human beings. Eat, live, break, and show that you accept all this as right. Yield to authority over your life, whose sickness it is that he has to be reassured that he is right, is driven to insane rage by contradiction, and we dare to contradict? Bow down to the corrupt inhumanity and show respect or die. This is what Wilson said to me at the close of that memorable, memorable conversation. Quote, Veronica, I'll keep you in that isolation cell to the day you die if I have to. I can do that. I said, no. No, you can't. How can you justify it? Eventually, someone's going to find out. I haven't done anything to merit being housed down there. He said, you're going to learn to do your own time. I said, I'll never shut up about what goes on down here. Then he played his ace in the hole. He said, no one believes you. You'll learn. 
End of interview. I knew that there were legal rules that allegedly protected prisoners from cruel and unusual punishments and promised due process. I had also learned firsthand from life that those things were little more than pretty fictions, like those plastic fried eggs you buy at a gag shop. They look nice, but they won't save or nourish a starving person. Eventually, one accepts the realities, and for me, that meant I had no power or legal remedy. I had always tried getting outside legal help to remedy the conditions on the eye block to no avail. I was told to try to document everything I could, and perhaps in time, we'd have the needed proof required by a court for intervention. Though essentially, prisons were free agents to do as they pleased. Wilson demanded that I stop assisting the other prisoners on the box block in filing their complaints against him and his punishment specialists. His entourage were yes-men, mostly yes-men, whose chief reward was the thrill of pseudo-Nazi concentration camp domination. It was so easy for them. All they had to do was follow directions. And weren't the directions delightful? The other COs were aghast over the conditions and treatment in the hole and transferred out as soon as they could manage it, horrified by the essentially hidden mini-prison hidden away from the general population prison and maximum security unit. After a while, I stopped being flabbergasted at the obvious satisfaction which some of the guards derived from breaking women's psyches wide apart till they groveled and muttered like half-wits. It wasn't random or accidental. It was a technique of sadistic domination. Aside from the physical conditions and neglect of basic prisoner needs, they would write formal infractions for absurdly trivial things. For example, charging a woman for violent behavior, assault, for something as frivolous as a paper cut blown off of a door tray by the draft of a cold wind, they pumped through the vents a two-inch paper cup which bounced off the floor and hit a staff person's ankle and called that an assault. Infraction equals more hold time. What fun. If they could find a cigarette hidden in a cell, well, that was worth more hold time. If they couldn't find it in the cell, but it turned up in the next room's plumbing catwalk, well, then charge it to the closest person, regardless of whether she might not have been the one who left it there. Don't let the fun stop. I know about the fun. I saw it. Sometimes it was at my expense. Of course, not all infractions were manufactured. They only had to do that when they couldn't find anything else. Mostly the regulations were so savage that there was usually something real or even, if trivial, that could be used to wield threat and power over a prisoner's life, justifying the box, black, the box block extensions of time. No communication, no display of human kindness or compassion, especially between prisoners, was permitted. That's infractable. Passing a note via a magazine left under the sink in the common shower room. The hidden tiny bag of hoarded candy left in the tub by the, or postage stamp by the telephone. Even just talking to the person in the next cell. A salt packet held back from lunch and hidden in the cell. And as for the enterprising criminal who managed to get an extra blanket, well, all of this was illegal. All of this was just more fun for them. Cursing, self-mutilation, women who tore up sheets and tried to hang themselves could actually be charged with the felony of 
destruction of state property because they damaged the sheet and light fixture they dangled from. It would be laughable if real people hadn't lived through it all. Then to add to their fun, the suicidal could be required to pay for the damage. And if you weren't charged with the additional felony or billed for the property, they would most likely throw it in your face, how they let you slide, and see how well they protected you. Now don't you owe them something? Punishment for a suicidal's wicked ways was a toss into the hole, the ultimate punishment. This was the blackout box, stripped to the bare walls with only a mattress on the floor, though that too would be removed if further destructiveness of self or others was exhibited. The water and lights were under the control of the fun-loving guards, not even books, nor paper or pencil allowed, no clothing other than a slipper gown and two thin blankets. Even toilet paper was issued only upon request when the guard decided to notice that a request had been made. Of course, the unused remi remainder of the roll must be returned while the guard waited outside the door for you to do your business. When you had a period, you only received cotex, no belt to hold it up with, and sometimes not even any panties either, all part of their fun. And the funniest part of it was that when I was placed in the hole to wait six months till my mysteriously misplaced paperwork cleared for the intensive management program, I wasn't even suicidal or infracted for any crime. In other words, in official terms, I got six months in that hell for nothing at all. A special joke just for me. Precedent setting. Also, everyone knew there were no legal basis at all to keep me there. Very helpful in the work of the righteous us, uses, putting pressure on the criminal them. At least they haven't tried that joke on anyone else since me. Everyone I've known who endured this for a suicide attempt has told me that the depression that led them to the suicide was nothing com in comparison to the depression from the ensuing treatment they received for having the audacity to try to dry, die in prison. They unanimous, unanimously said that next time they felt very suicidal, if it should come down to it, they'd make sure they didn't attempt. They would succeed. And that's an excerpt um, of my experience with Wilson and that's intense I know it is intense and I haven't read that for years and this is just one of many stories that you have compiled over yes. 23 years of being in prison yes it is and do you mind if we take a break no not at all but can I ask you real quick what's it like reading your material and going back to that moment how does it make you feel oh ah um and then we'll take a break. Okay. It's very upsetting and traumatic because I remember it all. And there's so much more that I didn't say beyond the text, you know. The real feelings and emotions that the text doesn't emit. So I feel um, gratified that I can share it with Jack's Corner and I appreciate this opportunity. And here at this corner, we, we, get, a, we, we get a feel for it. Thank you we so do. much. We I do. appreciate it. I appreciate You're that welcome. very much. Okay, so we're back from our break now. And uh, that was an interesting story on Sergeant Wilson, how he 
had such a grip on Veronica's life while she was in prison and really just shook things up for you and made it almost impossible for you. Yes, it was. Uh, that's just a, the tip of the iceberg. Uh, he was relentless in his cruelties and deprivations. Was this common for for other inmates as well to have no. this type of... No, it's not common at all. Um, I just so he singled to, you out. Yeah, he singled me out, and it was because of my intellect. I brought him political debates, and he would be outraged. You know, he's a very conservative um, Baptist, um, you know, a real... Um, and he would have one-on-one on one time guy. with you. Yes, and he would... This was for what, hours, it sounds for like. For hours, for hours. This is what's so bizarre. Would you, you debate imagine? with him? Yes, it was a nonstop. He wanted to pick my brain for the political arguments and humanitarian um, arguments and legal arguments that I would pose at his job and him and the handling of the prisoners. And um, so I did bring something about that. But um, right now, I would like to, if it's all okay, right with Okay, let's continue, you, yes. Okay, I'd like to read an excerpt from Sister Me, which is a book we haven't published yet. So it's kind of like a journal, so you can hear. 8-8-88. All alone now. Maybe a smoke. Toilet roll wrapper licked well to steal in the stale cigarette butts. I had pulled from the empty pods floor and garbage barrel. No easy feat with handcuffs and leg irons. All to the audience of new commitments watching me, talking of me, pointing fearfully, snickering, then nervously laughing as I watched them behind the glass wall that separates our bodies. Now, later, in my isolation box, smoking my find, I think it is not a time to cry, not a time to revel in the excesses of my life or its circumstances. It is just one more event from which I will grow stronger, wiser, and later perhaps when I lay this tired body down, I will afford a tear. Not many though, tears I've learned are sacred things, not meant to waste on oneself. One out of every four days of my life, locked in concrete boxes, has taught me that. I've time to consider how my escape has affected the lives of those near to me. Will it be to their advantage to discard me as other people tend to do when circumstances tend to push them to either stand firm in their love or flee as my notoriety descends upon them and their community? Oh well, oh well, yes. I say this often these days, oh well, peace. Earlier tonight, I gave two television interviews. Perhaps I was naive to do it, naive enough to hope it may make some difference. I had said a lot of truths, a lot of truths. It may be okay, it, if not, oh well. It's time for sleep now, for rest, not answers. 2.30 a.m., 8.9.88. Finally talked to Mickey. She said vile slit her throat, 39 stitches, the night of my capture before she learned I was on my way back. I know there are two informants, but who? 
The prison offered time cuts for information on my whereabouts, and two people took the deal. The chairman of the parole board told Mickey that I made statements about killing her. She said the information came from the prison and for Mickey to watch her back. More lies, naturally. The FBI said to Mickey, let's hope she's not going to kill more people, they said. They knew me and I was dangerous. More lies. My ankles ache from the leg irons. My escape has added another hideous scandal to the myth of Veronica. My alleged outside escape helper is supposedly the leader of the Aryan nation, the Aryan Brotherhood, according to the press. Their information came from the FBI. The press told me during one of the interviews, amazing. I didn't know the Aryans followed Cherokee Indians these days. It just goes to show you how far the oppressed have made it in the white man's world. More lies, more hype, more scandal to advance the ambitions of politicians and hungry journalists. The truth is too mundane. Still, I shudder. It's a strange thing to me to be, well, it's a scary reality to hear so many scathing lies and I feel the impact of those lies thought to be true by so many. Someone said at the last WPFSG meeting that, quote, we shouldn't glamorize Veronica. Maybe it's not such a good idea we even exhibit her paintings, unquote. She was outvoted. That's a relief. These paintings are needed to show the reality of the prison. They speak for us. WPSFG is there to inform and assist in our prisoner struggle for more humane treatment. I wonder how long it can keep alive. Financially, they're hurting. Washington Prisoner Family Support Group is sponsored by so few. Lou, the founding mother, like all the family members and friends involved in the work, gives so much, but stands so alone. Nina has been solid. She's the only one I feel that way about in the prison, that I rely on. Her politics make it impossible for her to be any other way. Trust is so demanding and so many fall prey to temptations. 81188 I wanted to tell myself and believe that, quote, things happen for an ultimately good reason, unquote. But I couldn't muster the faith in that. I noted that over the last year, my ambitions to write an autobiography waned into such a malnourished drive that I lost faith in my own writing ability. But now, faith aside, I see it as a necessity. It's one presumably realistic and accessible goal, given the limits of my current and future housing. Isolation cells have no luxuries. Paper and pencil are my only tools for expression. Isolation cells are all I can expect to see for some time to come. At least it's nothing new to me. I've served nearly three winters back to back. And... I appreciate you listening to me, and I'm stopping it there because the other pages aren't in order. So, Jackie, any questions? Yes. Um, 
you reflected, obviously, from your writing, you reflected on your escape and all the lies that were stirred up from your escape coming back. Yes. Mickey, it never, at, at no point ever felt in danger. No, Mickey ever felt, never, ever. Um, but our relationship had been over for years, and I had no intention of seeing her, and we had we loved each other, but, you know, as friends at a distance. But she knew not to believe what was being said. Oh, yeah, she knew. She knew. In fact, she had to go to the court and make a court dep- deposition stating um, that in all of the years that we had been friends, that she's never, ever once felt in jeopardy because of me or felt that I were a threat at all. So, um, you know, I've got the support of sane people around me, and the truth is the truth. You know, you can't run from it, and that's the truth. Did Mickey get out before you? Yes, she did. How many years before you? Um, If you can remember. Probably 10. That's a long time. Yeah. Did you stay in touch with her while you were inside? Um... For a while, for a while, and then you kind of, you know, distance because I got involved with my late husband, James Wallace, and so um, as she knew about my relationship to Jake, and she had met Jake for coffee, um, she was aware that I was, had fallen out of love with her, but I still cared about her, and that this was the person that, um, that I love now. You know, one of the things I remember we were talking about when you got pregnant with Juliet, um, there was, it was during a visitation with Jake, the professor. Yes. And you could feel when you were conceiving that one day. Yes, you're right. You felt something different and you felt we just conceived. Yes, it was a pretty miraculous event. Um, I had been on these sponges that I was supposed to take and then I was told, no, you can't use the uh, contraceptive sponge, that um, they were concerned about cancer and yada yada. So I wasn't allowed those, and uh, I wound up having a uh, trailer visit with my husband. Now, I just stopped using the uh, sponges like 48 hours before he arrived for our trailer visit, but we had a trailer visit, and... Um, you know, we, after our grand passion was spent, he's still on top of me. I saw this hole like in the roof above us and we were in a trailer. It was, um, a single or double wide trailer. I don't remember. That's what they, um, allowed prisoners to have, uh, their family trailer visits were in a, literally a trailer. But they were fine. They were like an apartment, and it was comfortable. Um, but at any rate, <laughs> um, this particular day, uh, I could feel I could. There was like this hole in the roof, and this golden orb descended, went through his um, mid back, and to my lower mid back, and then I felt this kind of like being touched by energy and it was very odd not quite an electrical shock but just a little um, tapping on my shoulder that there was some kind of electricity happening and uh, 
as it turned out, it was during those exact moments where she was conceived. Wow, that's beautiful. Thank you. Pretty she's, amazing story. She's huh? done so well. That is an amazing story. And she's done so well. You gave birth to her in prison. Yes. She was born in what year? September 17th. Okay. Well, we don't really need to discuss those details, but uh, uh, let's take a break. Okay, well, that does it for episode two of 23 Years in Prison here with the Duchess. And we're going to come back to you next Sunday. Stay tuned for episode three of Lessons Learned from 23 Years in Prison. Thank you for coming back. We look forward to seeing you and talking to you next Sunday. Hey, Jax, I just wanted to say thank you so much for this opportunity. And I hope that my story and insights um, allow the listener to obtain some measure of wisdom from my lessons in life. Okay, thank you all. Love to you. Peace out. You're welcome. Out. Peace out. Thank you for joining us here at Jack's Corner. We'll be back next Sunday with 23 Years in Prison, Episode 3. See you Sunday.